Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Grass withers and the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. So when you think of God, if you could picture the face of God, what is the disposition? I know God is a spirit. That's a nice, we know that he's not, doesn't have a body as we do. God is a spirit. But what if you could imagine God's face, what is the look upon God's face? Is he wearing a frown? Is he maybe a scowl? He looks down and he sees his people and he has maybe a scowl or maybe Maybe God just has a blank stare, like, I cannot believe this is even happening. I'm stunned. What, what is the, the face? What face does he have? Does God have a smile? Is God pleased? Can you even think of picturing God with any sort of a smile? Very, very often the picture is painted is that if a church has a concept of a holy God, I mean, we, I, I try to push the righteousness, the holiness, the transcendence of this great big God. And, and often the picture is painted that if you have this holy, righteous God, that you must then therefore have a very stuffy and downright grumpy God. He's holy and, and, that's, and he's just this stuffy old uh, grandpa in his old age. He's allowed to be grumpy now. He's been alone a long time and he's taken advantage of it. He gets to be grumpy. You know, and, if, and so sometimes that's the picture we have. If you have this grand, majestic, holy God, the face that he has is sobriety, is seriousness, is grumpiness almighty, he's stuffy. Is, is that who God is? As we seek to lift high the majesty of God, his holiness and his righteousness, is that who God is? Stuffy, uh, grumpy God. I don't think... That's the kind of God we have. Scripture tells us places like in Psalm 2, it's a fascinating passage. It's talking about, yes, his wrath upon his enemies, but he sits in heaven and he, he, he hears all the rebellion against uh, mankind against him, and he sits in heaven, Scripture says, and laughs. That God is, he's not perturbed by all the things that going on, are going on around him. God sits in heaven and rejoices. He, he laughs. We could look at many places in Scripture that tell us this sort of thing, that God is in the heavens and he's not disturbed, that God sits in heavens and he is, in fact, rejoicing, that we have a God who, when he is sovereign over all things, which we're going to get to a little more this morning, in his being sovereign over all things, having control of all things, he ain't worried. He's not worried. Things are going as he is working them out. Now, there's mystery involved in that, but clearly from our scriptures, God as the sovereign one sits in heaven 
and he is not wringing his hands. He is not scowling. He knows what's going on. But this morning, we have this interesting look into the emotions of Jesus. Now, this is the one place in all of your Gospels, the description of Jesus is one of him rejoicing. By and large, the emotion that we have from Jesus is weeping. He's a man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. That, that is the ethos of Jesus' life. He, he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He goes around and he has compassion. His heart is broken over this world. But Luke does share with us this interesting insight right here at the beginning of our passage for this morning that in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced. He rejoiced. The man of sorrows, somehow in the midst of all of the sorrows that are going on in his life and all the sorrows that are lined up for him, he's not unaware, right? We know that at this point, he's already told his disciples a couple of times, they're going to come and capture me. They're going to take away the Son of Man. He knows his death is coming. But somehow, in the midst of his sorrows and in the midst of frustration and being rejected by his own people, Somehow in the midst of all that sorrow, Jesus is a rejoicing Jesus. He is a rejoicing God. It's almost as if, if you remember last week, where we had this, this idea that they come back, the 72 or the 70 come back rejoicing at their ministry success, and Jesus says to them, don't rejoice in your ministry success, rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. And it's almost as if Jesus gets caught up in this wonderful proclamation, this reality of people, of their names being written in heaven, that he's caught up into it with them in their rejoicing. It's like he can't help himself. This idea of these, these fallen people being redeemed and having their names written down in heaven is such a grand joy, Jesus can't help. But in that same hour, he rejoices. He rejoices. And he rejoices, this is fascinating, in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. And we don't have time to go into a lot of this. If you ask uh, some people around what the book of Acts is, and if you ask Don, he'll tell you it shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles. He'll say it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm going to one-up him and say not only the book of Acts, but the book of Luke, which is the first, the Gospel of Luke, which is the first book that Luke wrote, they're both very Holy Spirit-centered. Not centered, but they meant they're talking about the Holy Spirit a lot. They're Christ-centered. But the movement of the Holy Spirit is very active in the Gospel of Luke and in the Acts of the Apostles. The Holy Spirit, Jesus here, we see this, he highlights the Holy Spirit a lot, but he's saying that in that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. It's a fascinating connection. We don't have time to get into all of it. But if you think about a movement of the Holy Spirit, what, 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 what do you immediately think? What is the attitude of a move of the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit were to come in among us and, dwell, and, and pour out in a, in a tangible way, in a, in a, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, but there are places that it speaks of in Scripture of the Spirit being poured out, the Spirit showing up, things happening. What would happen? Well, if... You can't, if your experience of the Holy Spirit is one that is devoid of joy, if joy never enters into it, if you think a movement of God by the Holy Spirit in and among us is one that is devoid of joy, then you don't really know Jesus. 
Jesus has a rejoicing that is in the Holy Spirit. Trusting Jesus, seeing Jesus, being filled and indwelt with the Spirit will mean many things. But one of the sure implications is that it will liberate you to know true joy. It means many more things than that, but it doesn't mean less than that. If you see Jesus, if you trust Jesus, if you are filled and indwelt by His Holy Spirit, it will mean many things. But one sure implication is that it will liberate you to know true joy. True joy. And true joy is what what we're shooting for here. True joy. We discussed last week, I said that he told his disciples not to rejoice in ministry success that they were having, but to rejoice instead in the eternal hope-filling reality of having their names written in heaven. And the emphasis is that Jesus is better than ministry success. But I would also include this reality that Jesus is better than any temporal pleasure. I mean, we kind of, you know, we're we're driving home the point Jesus is better than ministry success. Even if it goes well in your ministry, that has nothing to rejoice in compared to, not that you shouldn't rejoice in God blessing that, but it's nothing in comparison to the joy that is in Jesus. But I would also include this reality. Jesus is better than any temporal pleasure. And this is important for us to understand as Christians because the world and sinful, our sinful flesh is constantly barraging us with the promise of sinful pleasures. The world is constantly barraging us. You want to know peace? You want to know joy? You want to have, you want to have pleasures? Watch TV this afternoon. Turn on, I don't care. Watch cartoons. Watch your kids' TV show. It's disturbing. It's inundating children. The, here's pleasures. Here's, here's happiness. Here's how you have a good time. Here's what life is all about. Pleasures, pleasures, pleasures. And our culture and our own sinful flesh is constantly highlighting these, all these things. Here's joy. Here's joy. Here's, here's pleasures. Here's what, here's what you're going to find your happiness. And it's constantly barraging us with this. We are promised with a, a binge-drinking party culture. And this is our context right here. We are, we are convinced that going out and having a temporary night of getting blitzed is joy. This temporal pleasure that this thing, that this, this is joy. There's nothing more fun than getting temporarily blitzed. We are promised by a culture that, who thinks that sex has been improved upon by making it promiscuous. A culture that thinks that they have improved upon the marital union by saying, you know what, it doesn't matter, it's everywhere and anyone, no matter what. They think they've improved upon that. They've lifted up these these temporal interactions, and honestly, in our own sinful hearts. We're convinced sometimes that, that sounds like an improvement to me, and our own sinful flesh draws us away to all sorts of behaviors and interactions that in their end, we think they will satisfy us, but they never will. The uncontrolled spending of materialism, browsing the internet, looking for things to buy. I'll be happy, this temporary pleasure, when I own this thing, when this thing is on its way, whether I have the money for it or not, then I'll have pleasures. The, the, the consuming of pornography that is rampant in our culture. Young men and women tied up 
with this reality that when I view this thing, then I will feel pleasure. When I look at this illicit thing, then I will be satisfied. Then I'll be fulfilled. All of these lies, all of these pleasures, the the comfort eating, money hoarding, self-obsession perpetuated by our social media, always thinking about how do I look, how do I look, how do I look, how can I put a good face out to everyone else. All this narcissism, all these things in our cultures, they always leave us in our culture always leave us walking away ashamed of what has gone on and actually in deeper bondage to what we thought was going to give us freedom. Deeper bondage to what we thought was going to give us freedom. We're going to repeat the thing we now regret because we are told the lie over and over again and believe it in our hearts. This is where these temporary pleasures are where it's at. And all they do is give us shame, guilt, and more bondage. And our culture says, here's how you fix this. This, this is, here's the culture's answer. Remove the guilt, right? I mean, so you, we do all these things and, and we, we walk away, we wake up the next morning, guilt, feel dirty, we don't like it. What's the culture's answer? Stop feeling guilty. It's okay. Don't worry about it. That's the answer. And then so people just charge on even more into it and wake up even more the next morning even more dirty and guilty. They refuse to realize that what we should do is repent, trust in the forgiveness found of Christ, confess these things as sin, and then yes. See, here's what I here's where I get here's where I get excited. Because we say, kill temporary pleasures and go over here and go to stodgy religion. Th- that's the mindset we have. Don't have any pleasures, don't have these temporal pleasures, and come over here and just love Jesus. Just settle for Jesus. That is not the picture we have from Scripture. It is forsake temporal sinful pleasures for what they are. Temporal pleasures for the cosmic joy that is in Jesus. Cosmic joy. You can't get bigger than the cosmos. Everything that is. Cosmic joy that is in Jesus. Jesus is after a joy in your heart. Your heart, my heart, and our hearts here this morning, he's after a joy that does not fade. A joy that does not fade. New Year's Eve a couple of years ago, uh, just, just two years ago, New Year's Eve, we were in the hospital with, with Jana, and uh, she's on a heavy doses of antibiotics trying to kill this uh, flu, this, all the stuff she's got going on. She's on a ventilator. She's slated for surgery in a couple of days. If they can get her lungs cleared up, she's going to have heart surgery. And Darla and I are sleeping in a hospital room in Des Moines. And, um, you know, not an enviable position to be in. Nobody's like, well, sign me up. That sounds like a New Year's Eve party I want to be involved in. No one wants to be there at that time, do you? No. But we're sitting up there in that room, and we look out over, we're looking south over uh, 235 down in the downtown Des Moines, and they set off fireworks, and you knew, you knew parties were going on there at New Year's Eve. And, and, you know, I'm good for them. I'm not against fireworks or having a good time. But as we went to sleep, we could see these fireworks going off, and I was struck by this contrast. You know, there's nothing wrong with a celebration, but it struck me the difference between those lives and the one that I was in right now. And, and while I'm stuck in this hospital, you know, scared for my family, longing for things to go well, worried about this surgery is going up, what's going to happen, all the ifs go through your mind. As I sit up there, hundreds are out here maximizing their pleasures and all sorts of temporary things. And the question came to me, if I could have that, if I could have those temporal pleasures and not be in this situation, and all I had to do was give up Jesus, wouldn't those joys, would those joys be better? Would it be worth it? And the answer is a resounding no. 
if you don't know how to answer that question, we need to talk. Because these temporal pleasures, as they fade away, the joy is nothing to be compared with the joy that Jesus brings. Sinful pleasures cannot hold a candle to the cosmic joy found in Jesus. And Jesus' implication here is that they would never trade any joy for the joy of knowing their names are written in heaven and knowing Jesus. So after this statement of his rejoicing, he speaks and he thanks the Father that he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. And it makes us ask a couple of questions. What are the these things that he has hidden and, and why has he hidden them? Well, what he's kept hidden from the wise and the understanding is the truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, who Jesus is, what he is doing, and what, has, and what is, is not being revealed to the wise and the understanding. The, Jesus is saying that the, the true knowledge of him that benefits anyone is not a knowledge that is gained through natural means. Intelligence is important, it's highly valued in our culture, but the mindset then is often carried over into religious pursuits. You want to be intelligent, book smart, know all these things, because boy, look at the success that comes to you, but that doesn't translate in this room, it doesn't translate with Jesus. He's hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and it's not that if you're smart, Jesus isn't going to talk to you, it's not that, but the reality is, it's not through those pursuits that you can come to an accurate knowledge of who Jesus is. In our natural world, many of the most intelligent minds, they become scientists. They pick up a book, they take natural revelation, they're able to look at chemistry and physics and all these things and figure it out and do the book work, figure out how nature, the body, astronomy, all of these things work, and they're extremely intelligent. But then they come and they tell us there's no God. And it shocks us because you think, how can they be so smart and not, not realize that the very foundations of all the work they're doing are based upon some transcendent reality that holds things together and gives things consistency. But we won't go on much time there. But intelligence is not the pursuit that ends in finding God. That is not the short, it's not wrong to have intelligence and please continue in your pursuits. But that is not how it comes to, how the reality comes to us of finding Jesus. And the same with the wise in our age. Not the understanding, it's not the wise. How many spiritual sages do we have that talk about this reality of they, they, they spend a lot of time looking inside of themselves and discerning their own purpose and discerning their place in the universe and becoming one with the universe and discovering, they'll say, creepy things like the divinity within or connecting with the divinity in the universe. And they have all this wisdom and they have no connection with the true God. They take all this energy and devote it to discovering the divinity within themselves or in the world while never seeing the divinity of the Creator. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about this. We don't have time to go much into it, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he speaks of the, the folly of the gospel. Foolishness. Verse 18 in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the dis- and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in, his wi- in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. <laughs> The message of the gospel, the foolishness of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he has done. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has hidden, as we look at the beginning part of this passage, God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and bringing to nothing the things that are held up as something so that no human being boasts in the presence of God. No human being boasts in the presence of God. Think of it like this. Nothing will steal your joy in in knowing Jesus. Nothing will steal your joy quicker than by proudly thinking about the good things that you deserve. This is what I should get. I'm wise. I'm learned. I'm understanding. God, because I have I've climbed this ladder, you should X, Y, and Z. Nothing will steal your joy quicker than thinking the things you have are the things you deserve, are the things that you have earned, are the things that you have grown up into, that you have achieved for yourself, will rob the joy of those things. Sometimes the greatest hindrance to your faith is not full-blown debauchery, but delusional, proud self-righteousness. When you see the true gospel, a proclamation of what God has done for you while you were his enemy, not what you have done to earn the favor of God, your joy is full in the foolish of the world and foolish of the wise gospel message of Jesus Christ. This good news, not of what you have done, and this isn't to make you feel guilty, this is just the reality, it's to make you rejoice in the reality of, I didn't do it, I couldn't do it, but look what Jesus did. So my joy isn't in me anymore. My joy is in Him. Not because I have climbed a ladder of intelligence and wisdom and figured out God. God in His mercy has declared His gospel to me that I could hear it and be saved and be forgiven of my sin and reconciled to Him and therefore have true rejoicing in who God is for me. But believe it or not, I want to dig a little deeper. Two things. Glad I didn't pick three. Just two things. Two things. specific realities that further charge our joy in Jesus. The first thing is the sovereignty of God and of His Son. Look back at at Luke chapter 10 with me. Four things highlighted here that are just astonishing. Four things that are are just astonishing. The closer, the, the greatness of your joy in God will directly relate to your seeing and understanding of His true greatness. The greatness of your joy in God will directly correlate to your seeing and understanding of His true greatness. The the closer to reality your vision of the greatness of God is, the greater your joy in Him will be. Four pointers lifting up to us the greatness of God. Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is a Jewish description. You can look back in your Old Testament and, and see many descriptions of God in this way. He is the God of the Lord of heaven and earth. This is unique. This is not the polytheistic many gods religions they'd have if we have a God of the carpet, the God of the wind, the God of the sun, the God of the stars, the God of the, of the grass, the God of dirt, the God of earthworms. I don't, you got gods everywhere. That's not this God. This is the God of heaven, the Lord of heaven, and the Lord of earth. David offers this prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. He says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for, because, all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. God owns it all. Second thing, he says, Jesus is praying, God, I, I, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God designed to do it this way, and therefore, he did it. He wanted to do it this way, and so he did it. The NIV reads, for this is what you were pleased to do. God does as he desires to do. Now, this causes us as finite beings to ruffle a little bit. God does what he wants to do. We have specific things in mind, things that happen, and things that very obviously grieve the heart of God. And we think things, but, but the reality is, things that would obviously grieve the heart of God in one sense, but they are things that will prove in the final analysis to be for our ultimate good. And honestly, I'm quite okay with being puzzled by this. How can God always get his will, always get his way, be in charge, and all these bad things that I see happen? I can't make the two of these things match up sometimes. And you know what? I'm okay with that. You know why? I'm not God. And at some level, you can't explain these things. But somehow, God has promised in his word, he has told us that he is the sovereign God. He does what he pleases. And he will, Romans 8, 28, work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How that fits together, my pea brain can't figure it out sometimes. And I bet yours can't either sometimes if you're honest. But you know what? There's a reason why that can't fit. You're not God. You don't got his brain. But he, he does. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does his gracious will. And the sovereignty also goes to the Son. All things have been handed over to... All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Just, I spent a lot of time on this one. How many things are all things? Is all things some things? Or is all things all things? All things are all things. All things are, hid, are given to the Son's hands. And by that, he doesn't mean some things, but all things. God is sovereign. He is he is a Lord of heaven and earth. He does as he pleases. All things are in the hands of the Son, and the Son reveals himself to who he wants to reveal himself. There are some deep issues and some deep things to talk about there, but to just put our toe in the waters of this, we see that the Son and the Father are sovereign over even the revealing of themselves. We do not know about God because we are incredible discoverers and learners. We're the wise, the intelligent. No, we know of God because he has chosen to reveal himself. God big. God big. Does anyone know Wayne's world? God big. Be small. Darling, it's a, God's big. We're not. And, and the greatness of your joy in him, the, 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 the more you hamper down that greatness, you're hampering down your own joy in who he is. If your view of God is not as big as he truly is, your joy will be diminished. If your view of God is of an all-powerful God who's not all-loving, is not all-completely good, you'll have no confidence that he's going to, in the final analysis, be able to make all this work for my good. But if your view is of an all-good God who, boy, wants to do what's best, but he ain't got the power to work it out, I can't be happy. That I'm, not gonna, I'm worried about everything that's coming my way. Then God's strong, but boy, he does not, he's not loving and if your view is of this cosmic Christ, 
full of power and full of love and full of mercy, then your joy will rise to that accurate view of Him, knowing that all is in His hands and that He will not forsake those who are His and will not let shame come to them on that final day. First thing that this helps us with, sovereignty of God. Second thing is the true sight and seeing and hearing of Jesus. Verses 23-24. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. How is this supposed to help us? You read that and you think, what? Oh, that, why did Luke even put that there? This speaks nothing to me. And you know why it doesn't say anything to me? I didn't get to see Jesus. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Well, thanks a lot. I guess the blessing's out of my league. I mean, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And it seems as though that's what Jesus is saying, right? I mean, if you read it on its face, blessed are you if you've seen it, and blessed are you if you've, if you've heard it. It seems as though that's what he's saying. But think about it. We've just come out of verses 13 and 16. You've got your Bible open. You can look back there. And here are these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. What did they do? They saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw his miracles. They heard the tenor of Jesus' voice. They didn't just get to read it. They knew what it sounded like. And what happens to them? Whoa. Because they saw, they heard, and they rejected There is something more to what Jesus is saying here. It wasn't enough for those who just saw that they saw. There's a deeper seeing than seeing, okay? There is a deeper seeing than just seeing. The unbeliever who thinks, well, it's not fair, and and is going to go before the bar of God in the final judgment and say, you know, if I could have just seen Jesus, if I could have just actually heard his voice, then I would have believed, not going to get off. Because here we have many towns, Woe coming to them who did see, who did hear, and rejected. And it's a false idea that if you'd have been in their shoes, you'd have done differently. You probably would have done the same thing. You'd have rejected because your seeing is not real seeing. There's no saying that if they, these unbelievers, would have been alive at the time, they wouldn't have been just like the residents of Chorazin and Bethsaida, finding excuses to disbelieve even when they've seen. But not these disciples. They've seen it and, importantly, They've really seen it, okay? You know what I'm saying? They, they've seen it, and they've actually seen it. The prophets long for this full revelation is what he says. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Last passage, just 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. The prophets long for this saying, and it's the thing Peter talks about in his letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels longed to look. The prophets searched and inquired with longing to see the full revelation of the person and work of Jesus. They predicted his sufferings, but they couldn't see how they were all going to work out. However, as blessed as they were by God, having the Holy Spirit working through them to prophesy and getting glimpses of what's going to happen, we are far more blessed in having the full picture of who Jesus is and what he has done laid out plain before us in our scriptures. 
All of this has been declared to us in its fullness. The mystery, as Paul says, the mystery kept hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed. The mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. These realities are so great that the angels are longing to look into them. So, how does this increase our joy? How does this increase our joy? Well, do you see? If you see, do you realize there was no reason for God to have mercy on you and to show himself to you? He was not obligated to do so. By his good will, by his own providence, by his own mercy and grace, he has revealed himself. If you see, do you realize there was no reason for God to have mercy on you and to show himself to you? The very existence of your knowledge of him is an incredible mercy. Blessed are those who believe and do not see, Jesus tells Thomas, right? And I'd go on to say, blessed are those who believe and do not see because they really do see. Blessed are those who believe even though they have not seen because they truly see who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus commands his disciples to rejoice. Jesus himself rejoices in the Holy Spirit. Will their rejoicing and his rejoicing be our rejoicing? Will we cast away all sinful temporal pleasures for the having of eternal joy? Will you see? Will you see this morning? The sovereign Lord of the universe has made himself known. He has put his love on display And it is in remembrance of that display of love that we come to communion. As you come to communion this morning, pray, ask for eyes to see. Confess the sins of lower pursuits, of temporal sinful pleasures. Receive the mercy and forgiveness secured by Christ. And then see, see the broken body, the shed blood of our Savior. And rejoice in having eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, Do your work here among us. We confess our utter dependency upon you. As we prepare for communion, convict us, God. Not for the sake of guilt alone, but that upon the confession of these sinful pursuits to you, upon the looking to Christ, his his righteous life, substitutionary death, resurrection from the dead, we can by your mercy be forgiven and walk out of these doors doors in light and life of your joy. Do this in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.